scriptures to Psalm 89. The poet sits and he spreads out the material in front of him. He's read the scrolls. He's taken a moment to consider his own heart. considers the circumstances that the people that he is getting ready to write a hymn for are facing in their lives at that moment. He doesn't want to simply express a truth. He wants to give voice to the emotions that those people would be feeling and would sense as they Consider their own circumstances as they considered their own hearts. And so he picks up his stylus to write. And now, all these thousands of years later, we come to Psalm 89. The truth is still here, the words of the poet still resonate with our own hearts. Let's consider these words from our God. First of all, the poet introduces us to a covenant. The composer instructs us and introduces us to the theme of his song, and that theme is a faithful covenant God of heaven and a fallible king of the earth. Verses 1 through 4. I will sing of the steadfast love of the Lord forever. With my mouth I will make known your faithfulness to all generations. For I said, steadfast love will be built up forever. In the heavens you will establish your faithfulness. You have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. So one of the first emotions that we see expressed by the poet in this hymn that was sung by congregations of Israelites through the years is the emotion of happiness, of exaltation. He's excited. He is talking about this faithful God. The first part of this covenant, the first participant that he brings to us is the faithful God. And he tells us what he thinks of this this steadfast love that this God has and it's forever. With his mouth, he wants to express how much this God means to him. His steadfast love forever. In the heavens, he will establish his faithfulness. He is a faithful God. Then he introduces us to the second participant in this covenant. In verse 3, And you have said, I have made a covenant with my chosen one. I have sworn to David, my servant. I will establish your offspring forever and build your throne for all generations. And that means something to us. We've been studying through Samuel. And we've seen David rise 
And that means something to us, just enjoying that story together. But imagine the members of the nation of Israel singing this song about their favorite king, King David. The emotions that they feel. Uh, this is not just any old man. This is someone that this righteous, this faithful, loving God has chosen to be the king of their nation. This is a wonderful, beautiful covenant to them. They are excited to sing this song. And you would think that would be enough. The covenant has been introduced, but the poet can't let it go. After he introduces us to the participants, he begins to extol the, the participants. First, he shows us the covenant-making God. In verses 5 through 18, let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. For who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? A God greatly to be feared in the counsel of the holy ones. And awesome above all who are around him. O Lord God of hosts, who is mighty as you are, O Lord? With your faithfulness all around you. You rule the raging sea. When it waves rise, you still them. You crushed Rahab like a carcass. You scattered your enemies with your mighty arm. The heavens are yours. The earth also are yours. The world and all that is in it, you have founded them. The north and the south, you have created them. Tabor and Hermon, joylessly praise your name. You have a mighty arm. Strong is your hand, high your right hand. Righteous and justice are righteousness and justice are the foundation of your throne. Steadfast love and faithfulness go before you. Blessed are the people who know the festal shout, who walk, O Lord, in the light of your face, who exult in your name all the day, and in your righteousness are exalted. For you are the glory of their strength. By your favor, your horn is exalted. For our shield belongs to the Lord, our King, to the Holy One of Israel. And so the congregation sings. They've been introduced to the covenant. And they've been introduced to the participants of that covenant. And now they come and they see why this covenant is so wonderful. It's because it is made by a wonderful God. Who is this faithful, covenant-making God? The poet paints the picture. We see a God of love and faithfulness and a God of righteousness and justice. A God to be worshipped. We see that he is unique in the heavens, in verse 5, let the heavens praise your wonders. Who in the skies can be compared to the Lord? Who among the heavenly beings is like the Lord? There is no one who can stand up to our God. 
The song rises beyond the congregation into the heavens. God is wonderful. The covenant-making God is unique among everything in heaven, whether it's reality or even those gods that have been made up by the nations around them. God is unique among the beings of heaven, real or imagined. There is no one who can make a covenant like our God. The heavens bow before him because we know that he rules in heaven. How much more the creation. We see that the covenant making God is unique in the heavens and he is mighty over creation. God is mighty. No matter the storm, no matter the chaos of nature, the deserts, the volcanoes, the hurricanes, all of these things are no match for our God. God rules it all in his greatness. This is the covenant-making God, unique in the heavens, mighty over creation, And all of this is turned in a direction. He is a blessing to his people. Verse 14, righteousness and justice are the foundations of your throne. We've seen the first theme, which is steadfast love and faithfulness. And here we see the second theme of the psalm. And that is righteousness and justice. He is a God of faithfulness and steadfast love, but he is also a God of righteousness and justice. He can be trusted because he is this God. His people can take comfort in the truth that this God, this covenant-making God, is both great and he is good. So we see a covenant-making God. He's unique in the heavens. He's mighty over creation. He's a blessing to his people. And then we are brought and introduced more fully to the second participant of this great covenant. The covenant receiving king. We have a covenant making God and a covenant receiving king. Verse 19. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David my servant. With my holy oil I have anointed him so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My righteousness, my faithfulness, and my steadfast love shall be with him. And in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. 
And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant will stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love or be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever, his throne as long as the sun before me. Like the moon, it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. We've seen this covenant-making God, unique in the heavens, so incredible. Even the angels, if we saw an angel, we would fall on our face. How much more a great creator God. He is this God who controls everything around us. The sun only came up this morning because he chose it to. Creation bows before him. He is this mighty God. There is no blessing. There is no rain that falls from the sky. There is no breath that we breathe that this great God does not control. And yet, He chose a man. An earthly king was chosen to represent God's heavenly kingdom on this earth. That is the beauty of David. The children of Israel were God's chosen people. He, He chose them to represent his name in the nations. And David was chosen, anointed to be the shepherd king of this people, to represent God in the midst of his people. That is the beauty of David. He was unique among men. God spoke through Nathan and Samuel and anointed him to be the king to represent God to his people And to the world around him. God is unique in the heavens. David unique on the earth. God is mighty over creation. God made David mighty over his enemies. Verse 21. We read. So that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall strengthen him. The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. David was mighty, but it wasn't because of his own strength. It was because God granted help. He granted help to the mighty one. And it was that help who made the mighty one mighty. So we see that Saul had slain his thousands, 
but David his ten thousands. God called David to be a man of war. And we learned recently that God gave him victory wherever he turned. David was mighty over his enemies. He was representing a God who is mighty over all in this kingdom of the earth. And we see that all blessings came to God's people from his hand. But also, in verse 24, we see that David was a blessed by God to be a blessing to his people. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, with David, and in my name shall his horn be exalted. And his horn is not a trumpet. The horn here is a container. Uh, It's not exactly this, but think about the old Thanksgiving pictures of the cornucopia with fruit spilling out of it. That's the picture here. Full, overflowing, his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the seas and his right hand on the rivers. God gave to David through his warrior fight. He gave him the land, stretched it out, and fulfilled the promise for the children of Israel coming into the land. God blessed his people through David the human king. And then we see that this covenant is forever. What a wonderful song. And it gets more wonderful. This covenant wasn't for a moment. It wasn't just for the time when David became king. It was a covenant forever. David was not merely another king on the earth. He was to be a king to start the highest kingdom that would have no end. He would be an earthly king who calls the heavenly king his father. In his grace, the father king would keep the covenant forever. Even if David's sons turned from God, though God would punish them, still God would remain just and righteous to his promise to David, and his kingdom would be established forever. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, O my God, and the rock of my salvation, and I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings of the heaven. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever. And my covenant shall stand firm for him. I will establish his offspring forever and his throne as the days of the heavens. If his children forsake my law and do not walk according to my rules, if they violate my statutes and do not keep my commandments, then I will punish their transgressions with the rod and their iniquity with stripes. But I will not remove from him my steadfast love to be false to my faithfulness. I will not violate my covenant or alter the word that went forth from my lips. Once for all I have sworn by my holiness, I will not lie to David. His offspring shall endure forever. His throne as long as the sun before me, like the moon it shall be established forever, a faithful witness in the skies. 
What a beautiful, beautiful song. And as the congregation began to sing the song, imagine the emotions that were welling up thinking of this great God, thinking of this great covenant that had been given to their king. What a wonderful, wonderful song. But I go back to the poet. And the poet, as he began to write, this didn't unveil itself to him as he wrote. The poet had read the scrolls. The poet looked around him. He saw what was happening in the world surrounding him. He looked into his own heart. He saw what was there, the questions that arose. And we come to this verse and this phrase, but now. The song swells with hope and confidence until we reach verse 38. But now, what has happened? Where is this faithful and loving God? How can he be righteous and just if he does not keep his word? In verse 49, the poet laments, Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? The poet looks around. He's been commissioned to write a song that will express what is happening to the people. This song is to be sung by the people. Why do we read the next words? But now you have cast off and rejected. You are full of wrath against your anointed. You have renounced the covenant with your servant. You have defiled his crown in the dust. You have breached all his walls. You have laid his strongholds in ruins. All who pass by plunder him. He has become the scorn of his neighbors. You have exalted the right hand of his foes. You have made all his enemies rejoice. You have also turned back the edge of his sword. And you have not made him stand in battle. You have made his splendor to cease. And cast his throne to the ground. You've cut short the days of his youth. You have covered him with shame. Has the covenant been forsaken? This great God, this wonderful king, this incredible covenant, I don't see it happening around me. I see a people in disarray. I see a people captive. We don't know exactly when this was written. Some believe it perhaps was written during the reign of Rehoboam when the kingdom was split and the enemies were coming against Rehoboam, the remaining son of David. Others trace it to the exiles where the kingdom has fallen 
And they are not even in the land. This song was sung. Whether it was with Rehoboam or later, the song was sung. And the emotions of the heart were the same. Oh, great covenant-keeping God, where are you? That was the song, the lament of the heart. The poet is in conflict. He's entering the dark night of the soul. Is the covenant forsaken? Why does he think that perhaps the covenant is forsaken? It's because of the present failure that he sees. Verses 38 through 45, we see that happening. It doesn't merely say that the circumstances have gotten out of God's control here. It's saying the poet paints a dark, active God who purposefully has thrown the covenant aside. Instead of grace, we find wrath. Instead of exaltation, we have defilement. The mighty arm has been turned against the anointed. And the enemies prevail. Instead of blessing, we find plunder and scorn. The splendor of the forever throne has ceased. The glorious, eternal kingdom has been cut short. This is what the children, the congregation saw as they sang. And think about it. Since the time of David... Every time this psalm is sung, it is the same. Even the rabbi picking up this psalm and reading it today in the Holy Land is reading it as missiles fall on the land and the kingdom of David. Where is this covenant keeping God? So he asks a question from the darkness. Out of the darkness, the poet raises the question, How long, O Lord? The song charges God with faith, forgetfulness, and even vanity. I even read in a commentary that there's one particular rabbi who won't read the psalm because he can't imagine that someone would make this charge against Jehovah. There is no steadfast love and faithfulness in this cry. It is the cry of a man entering a hopeless death. How long, O oh Lord, will you hide yourself forever? How long will your wrath burn like fire? Remember how short my time is. For what vanity you have created all the children of man. What man can live and never see death? Who can deliver his soul from the power of Sheol? The question from darkness. And then it ends with a plea for rescue. But the God at the beginning of the song is not completely lost to the composer. He makes a plea for rescue, calling upon the grace and faithfulness sworn to David. The poet claims the promise in the darkness and calls upon a righteous 
and just God to hold to his covenant. The covenant kingdom on this earth being mocked is to mock the kingdom of heaven. Lord, where is your steadfast love of old, which by your faithfulness you swore to David? Remember, O Lord, how your servants are mocked, and how I bear in my heart the insults of all the nations, which, with which your enemies mock, O Lord, with which they mock the footsteps of your anointed. Can you resonate with the congregation? Can you resonate with the poet? Do you lie in bed at night going through your own darkness of the soul? Where? Where are you, covenant-keeping God? This psalm is for you. It seems to end here as the poet puts down his pen. It ends with a cry, a lament. But remember, this is poetry. It didn't just unfold. The poet, before he ever sat down to write, he considered what he was going to say. He considered the scriptures. He considered the scrolls. He looked into his own heart. He considered the circumstances surrounding him. And he penned the words that we read. It is not an accident that the first part of the psalm exists with the second part of the psalm. The answer to the second stanza is the first. In the darkness of your soul, when the world and the circumstances surrounding you are pressing in on you and you ask, where are you covenant-keeping God? Remember, he has not changed. He is the God of the first stanza. The last thing that we see in this covenant being kept, we come to the end of the psalm, the third book of the psalms, we look at it and we see it as a whole composition. Is it really the intent of the poet to leave us without hope? We come to verse 52. Now, the verse 52 is most likely not a part of the original psalm, but rather a doxology in, ending the third of five collections of the psalms. The Spirit did not place it here without purpose. I am convinced of that. It turns our focus to the answer to the question from the darkness. It gives the hope for a plea for rec ref rescue. It is a doxology of hope. Turn in your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 24 and verse 25. A doxology of hope. Enter Jesus.
Jesus walking with the disciples along the road of Emmaus. He said to them, O foolish ones, and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. Now we don't know exactly what Jesus said. But I can't help but think that Psalm, 37, or Psalm 89 may have been one of the scriptures that he brought to their attention. Because in this we see our King Jesus. There is a man king who has suffered our darkness. And as Natalie read earlier, Jesus on the cross crying out, what? My God, why have you forsaken me? My God, where is the covenant-keeping God? Jesus suffered his own darkness of the soul. And as you suffer your darkness of the soul, he knows where you are. He knows the questions that you ask. And he does not berate you for the questions. He does not berate you for the pleas. He just says to you, remember the first stanza. Regardless of what is happening, the covenant will be kept the son of David will sit on the throne because the son of David suffered in the darkness. The psalm right before this, Psalm 88, is the only psalm that we have that really does not end with any type of hope. It doesn't begin with any type of hope. Tradition says that this was probably a psalm that was going through Jesus' mind because it points to that time when Jesus was betrayed and before he was brought in to be judged, they kept him in the night in a pit. You can go over to Israel today and you'll see a place that's called the sacred pit. No light, entire darkness. You could only be lowered down into it with ropes. And in the darkness of night, Jesus cried, I am counted among those who go down to the pit. I am a man who has no strength. Are you weak? Jesus knows. He has felt that same emotion that you have felt. He knows what it is to be weak. Verse 18 of Psalm 88 you have caused my beloved and my friend to shun me. My companions have become darkness. Jesus was betrayed by one of his own followers. And there he was in the pit 
No light, just darkness. He knows. What is the answer? Isaiah 50 and verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the voice of his servant? Let him who walks in darkness and has no light trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. What is the answer to the darkness of your soul? The answer isn't, hey, don't you know the truth? Snap out of it. Get over those bad emotions. That's not the answer. The answer is to sing Psalm 89. Call out. Question from the darkness. Send out a plea from the darkness. But don't forget the first stanza. Don't forget that Jesus was not left in the pit. Don't forget that while Jesus cried out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It was just for a moment. And it was just for us. Because on the third day, he rose again. The eternal king was exalted. Consider Jesus being found in human form. He humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even the death on a cross. It was dark. The covenant seemed to be forsaken. Where was this covenant-keeping God? Jesus was dead. It was dark. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow. In heaven, remember, in heaven, on earth, remember, the creation, And under the earth, the darkness of death. Jesus is the answer. There is a God king who will reign forever in glory. A righteous and just God will fulfill his gracious and faithful promise to the shadow king. In the person of the king of light. With this eternal view in mind, let us read again the words of Psalm 89, verses 19 through 37. Of old you spoke in a vision to your godly one and said, I have granted help to one who is mighty. I have exalted one chosen from the people. I have found David, my servant, With my holy oil I have anointed him, so that my hand shall be established with him. My arm also shall shall strengthen him, 
The enemy shall not outwit him. The wicked shall not humble him. I will crush his foes before him and strike down those who hate him. My faithfulness and my steadfast love shall be with him, and my name shall be his and in my name shall his horn be exalted. I will set his hand on the sea and his right hand on the rivers. He shall cry to me, You are my Father, my God, and the rock of my salvation. And I will make him the firstborn, the highest of the kings on the earth. My steadfast love I will keep for him forever, and my covenant will stand firm for him. Jesus is unique in the heavens. Jesus is mighty over creation. Jesus is a blessing to all those he calls to himself. David was but a shadow king. Psalm 89 is only pointing to a greater king, the firstborn, the only begotten, the king of glory. Yet before the covenant could be realized with us, Psalm 89 isn't just for the congregation of Israel. Psalm 89 is for you and for me. Before we could move beyond the shadows into the glorious light, the king of heaven had to be the forsaken king on earth. He had to bear the darkness of our sin to be our forgiving king. Blessed be the Lord forever. Amen and amen.